Chapter 9 of The Recording Angel by Edwin Arnold Brinholtz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Andrew Bemis. Do them, or they'll do you. Business version of the Golden Rule. The person who in the year 1900 traveled over the state of Missouri or looked on its map would not have found the city of Clyde or the smaller municipality of Steelton. With their usual foresight, the rich men who owned the different iron and steel plants had consolidated and consolidated again until, at last, further consolidation was impossible. The great improvement in the methods of rendering the ores and manufacturing the iron made it cheaper in the long run to abandon many of the plants in the Atlantic coast states, and new mills and furnaces with the latest improvements were erected, and always further west and south. The completion of the Panama Canal found the central plant of the Consolidated Iron and Steel Company located in the almost central state of Missouri, where an unexcelled amount and quality of ore and everything needed in the manufacture, and water as well as rail transportation for the finished product, gave them additional leverage for multiplying their vast wealth. Little cared they for the working men who by a lifetime of saving had purchased homes in the eastern states, and who now, in order to secure work, had to sacrifice everything and move west. The corporation made money even out of this. They located the works on the site of those previously owned and operated by Robert Endy Sr. He, seeing the uselessness of resistance, had made the best bargain he could with them and secured a promise that his old employees should be given employment. This promise was kept in the manner that we have seen. The company owns all the surrounding country that they could purchase. There was but little they wished for that they did not find some means to secure. The mineral resources and manufactures of the state were already, in 1900, well developed, and the country was then full of flourishing towns. As far as the towns are concerned, they, soon after the putting of Mr. Craggy's plans in operation, became a thing of the past. For those that found favor in the sight of the officers of the corporation soon swelled to the size of cities, and the others ceased to grow or died of stagnation. At the close of the last century, the hardship of the farmer's life was already having its effect in the same direction, and as the consolidation of great masses of humanity in the cities chimed in exactly with Mr. Craggy's plans, he facilitated the killing off of the small towns, regardless of the suffering and loss entailed on individuals. The company made more millions than even they would ever own up to in the founding of their new city, Clyde, situated on the banks of the Mississippi. The way for it had been silently prepared by the smart men who once in a while secured a personal interview with Mr. Craggy to report progress and receive new orders, and it was fully fifteen years after he said the first word about it to any of them before the public or those who had formerly owned the land became aware of what was going on. Then, the scale on which the city was laid out and the open announcement by Mr. Craggy that he intended to dwarf St. Louis and, in fact, any other city in the world was made public. And those who knew Mr. Craggy's record did not doubt either his intention or ability to do as he promised. So they bought. And it was these purchasers who really paid for the city. For every dollar they spent in improving their own property was only another excuse for increasing the price of the unsold lots, of which the company had retained, 
at the start every other one. It is true that the charter of the I&S Company did not permit it to do anything but manufacture iron and steel. The stockholders did not get a penny of these profits. They all went into the pockets of the president of the company, the Honorable Gustavus Craggy, and a few of his pets. But the plans were made, and the executive work was largely done by the company's clerks and officers, and those bills and numerous others the company paid. No sooner was ground broken at Clyde than Mr. Craggy had a straight line of track laid over the sixty-odd miles that separated Steelton from the metropolis, and the time he allowed for the trip was forty minutes, if he was not in a hurry. He, with a few others, owned this road, and the company paid exorbitant freight charges on their product, ostensibly to crush out competition, but really to fill the coffers of the owners. The Honorable Gottlieb Voss was then elected president of this and several other roads, and he understood perfectly that he had to thank Mr. Craggy for the position. Therefore, Mr. Craggy carried in his pocket an order signed by Mr. Voss giving him the right-of-way at any and all times. So what could one expect but that regular trains would have to wait when Mr. Craggy received a certain telegram announcing the death of MacDonald and the circumstances attending it? He was, at that instant, at Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, inspecting the plant there, and he proposed to remain in that vicinity for at least a week longer. By his side, when he received the telegram, was his private secretary, Archibald Chambers, a remarkably fine-looking man with the quietest manner and the palest face imaginable. The way in which the heads of departments spoke to him convinced everyone at once that Chambers was no ordinary man. The president treated him as he did everyone, that is, in a curt, ungentlemanly way, and Chambers never paid the slightest attention to the tone or the words. His reply was always clear, concise, and courteous. After reading the telegram, Mr. Craggy handed it to Chambers with the remark, What did that infernal fool send such a piece of information as this to me for? People have to die sometime, don't they? Chambers met his angry glance and said quietly, Shall I order the car to be ready to start at the earliest possible moment, sir? Say, in half an hour? If you think well of it, I will send the man a check for fifty dollars. He has served you well. No one was within hearing, yet Mr. Craggy made a pretense of reading the telegram again. Then he said, Yes, yes, you are right. There is apt to be trouble. There is really nothing to keep us here. So, although at the moment all was quiet, they started west. On the road home, he received another telegram announcing the beginning of the strike, and later one telling of the arrest of Arndt and giving the editorial in full. The special train had never, in all its fast runs, covered the miles in fewer seconds than it did during the darkness of that night after the receiving of that last telegram. They had just made a stop in order to lay in some provisions which had been ordered by wire. These were not on hand at the moment of their arrival, for they were away ahead of schedule time, a clear track having been secured for them. The cook left the car to attend to the matter. In the meantime, the last telegram arrived, and Mr. Craggy gave no further thought to eating. He was furious, and had to have someone on whom to lay the blame. The only person in the car, besides himself, since the cook had been left behind, was Chambers. He turned on him and fiercely said, 
I can't for the life of me see why this important piece of news comes so late and has reached me in this way after it is too late to prevent its publication. Chambers looked up from his writing and very quietly replied, Robert Endy evidently expected to have that man Arndt make some sort of compromise with him, and so he kept it quiet in the first place. I know Endy well, and that's just him. Then Jones made the arrest, that's plain, and we haven't got a hold on him, and he could prevent its getting into the evening papers. Moreover, three days ago, you gave me the orders not to open any mail or telegrams that came marked private. I always obey orders to the letter. Some operator may have sent you a notice that way. Here are some that came while you were sleeping. The operator at Steelton wouldn't send you notice of anything. Wouldn't, eh? Well, we'll attend to his case by and by. Yes, here's the telegram from that fool operator at Clyde. I think he's expecting a reward. He's taken special pains to bring himself to my notice. Well, I'll pay him. Have him discharged. News that don't get to me in time is worse than none. Blacklist the idiot. And so they sped on through the night, and as Chambers said to himself as he stepped from the car the next morning, If there was a moment of the time that you weren't making this earth a hell for someone, mostly for me, old gentleman, I don't know of it. But we, however, must leave those two to finish their journey while we go back a few hours in order to account for the reason why Mr. Chandler did not get a chance to make the speech of his life, which speech would, in all probability, have cast most of the odium of the suit, at least in the popular mind, upon the Iron and Steel Company. When Robert saw his father go with Arndt and the sheriff, he supposed that it was with the intention to secure bail for Arndt, and so save him from prison. Robert's lawyer, who was none other than Eugene Johnson, had thought that it was his duty to inform his client of what was so manifestly against his interest. And so, as between the part of clerk in his father's office and a lawyer building up a practice of his own, his ideas of what was proper became mixed. He decided upon the course which he thought would soonest fill his own pockets. Therefore, he had informed Robert that the will could easily be broken, when the time came, and advised the suit against Arndt as a preliminary measure, and every word he told his client was true. Many a man who has stood in the way of the money power in this country discovered their methods to his costs, and has been disposed of easily enough, without killing him either. Sometimes he is ruined in business, sometimes this, and other times that way is chosen, but the man who does not cringe and bow and scrape to the moneyed class in America today sooner or later finds the mailed hand. It was bad in 1900. It is much worse, infinitely worse now, and these proceedings against Arndt could easily enough have landed him high and dry out of the swim. But neither Eugene Johnson nor Robert Endy calculated on the genuine affection which had grown up between Arndt and Robert's father, Neither did they, nor anyone else, know of the slowly crystallizing resolution of ten years' growth, which had become hard as diamond on the day when Robert Endy stood by the coffin of Angus MacDonald, as he realized that, but for his son's ambition, not to be rich, but to excel all other men at whatever cost, the man then lying still in death would be alive and talking to him as of old on the subjects which were of equal interest to both. And this lack of knowledge was the fatal flaw in the chain forged by the plotters. 
Mr. Endy, for the time, even forgot that the man he was fighting against was his son, for when Robert said that the officer was at the door waiting to arrest Arndt, every sense of hospitality in his father's being was shocked to its foundation, and that weighed with him even more than the implied threat or hint of his mental unsoundness. So Robert laughed as he saw them leaving the grounds, well knowing that no bail could be secured for Arndt that day, and fully intending that none should be accepted for him on the morrow, since Johnson had assured him that the magistrate was amenable to reason, whatever that may signify. He therefore went whistling into the house and decided to retire quite early, since there was nothing to be seen or done in Steelton, there being not even the works to interest him, they standing dark and silent for the first time since they had been erected. The company had always been prepared for previous strikes, and by doubling up the force had heretofore kept at least a part of the plant running. So, after sauntering around the grounds until dark, he went back to the library, and after smoking a cigar while he made a few more plans, he went to bed and soon fell asleep. But his last conscious thought was one of amusement as he imagined the disappointment he was sure had come to his father and aunt. He arose early in order to take the first train to Clyde, where he would have to appear as prosecutor in the case against his former friend, and he now began to get nervous as he realized, for the first time, that the suit implied a doubt as to the mental condition of his father. Oddly enough, this had never attracted his attention, although it was the first thought of his father and aunt on the preceding day. He was now sorry for the part he was going to have to play, but he was so bitter against aunt, whom he held personally responsible for the strike occurring at this time, since it upset all his plans and calculations, that he braced himself to face the matter to the end. For, he argued with himself, it's partly true, anyhow. Father must be getting weak in his mind to have made such a will. Nevertheless, he did not feel quite comfortable about it, and it was while he was endeavoring to find some way out of this unpleasantness without releasing his hold on Arndt, and while still seated at the table trying to eat his early breakfast, that he was startled to hear the servant who was waiting on the table say, Mr. Robert, sir, Mr. Craggy is in the library, and he asked to see you at once. Robert did not go at once, but it did not take him long to finish the meal. The presence of the president of the largest corporation on the face of the earth was enough to spoil the appetite of any ordinary mortal, and Robert never realized until long afterwards that he had not asked Mr. Craggy to be seated. Mr. Craggy was evidently angry at the slight delay, and as Robert entered the library, he stopped his walk and promptly handed him the telegram containing the heading and editorial which we have seen prepared. The newspaper, or some member of its staff, served the corporation well and had promptly notified Mr. Craggy of the blow which was preparing. This had been foreseen by Chandler, as was appreciated by all those who read carefully the last paragraph of the editorial. As a matter of fact, the very newspaper that contained this matter also contained, in letters twice as large, a so-called interview with Mr. Craggy, which was really dictated to Chambers as they traveled swiftly through the night. In this so-called interview, the President emphatically denied any responsibility for the arrest of Arndt and said that it was the last thing the company wished, which was true enough, and that he expected to find that it was all a trick of the strikers themselves, which he knew to be a lie. 
Robert, for a few moments, stood there perfectly dumbfounded at the unexpected turn events had taken, and all that Mr. Craggy said to him was, Have you read that, Mr. Endy? And then he resumed his walk as Robert started to reread the words that showed him that his chances for ever being president of the company were slipping away, and very fast at that. Therefore, when he looked at his guest, he was not surprised to have him stop directly in front of him and order, Please sit down and say in writing over your own signature that the company has had nothing whatever to do with this matter, that it is entirely your own private affair, and also that the company's name has not even been mixed up in it in any manner, shape, or form, first or last. At the concluding sentence, Robert winced and then said, I cannot say that, since I tried to serve the company at the same time as myself, by making it a condition of my proposed abandonment of the suit that Arndt should use all his influence to secure the return of the men to work at once. Well, 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 stormed Mr. Craggy. It is even worse than I expected. I would like to know on what authority you acted. I would like to know how you obtained the information that I desired the men to return to work at all. If the strikers don't win this time, I think that we will have them whipped forever, for they never had such another chance. And if they put you on the stand, you will have to swear to that? Robert simply nodded his head. Botheration, said the president. And so I've got your conscience to fool with, have I? I would not for ten thousand dollars that this had happened. There isn't but one way out of it. They will have a good lawyer. They've learned that much and you simply must not be put on the stand. You've got to let your private affairs go for the present and telegraph to your attorney to withdraw this suit at any cost. You can send the bill to me. I am able to pay my own bills, sir, said Robert haughtily, and I will gladly withdraw the suit, but not entirely on account of the company. I have made a blunder, and I will do my best to correct it at once. Do so was the ungracious reply of Mr. Craggy as he went towards the door, and then together they passed out of the house. As he stepped into his carriage, which awaited him at the door, he paused and said, I forgot to mention that after today, the company will have no further use for your services, Mr. Endy. Precisely so, said Robert. End of chapter 9